0: Welcome back to another episode of Time Out with a Sports Doctor, where life, sports, and medicine intersect. I'm your host, Dr. Derek Burgess.
1: On average, when you get this illness, you are going to give it to three to six other people. And that's much, much more infectious. It's on the order of measles in terms of infectivity.
0: So today we have Dr. Rambod Rubash, who is a principal investigator with MediSync Clinical Research in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, In addition to that, he is a practicing family physician and runs a residency program for Forest General Hospital. Um, In addition to his family medicine training, he also has completed an additional residency in preventative medicine and occupational medicine. That training is coming in handy dealing with a pandemic. Um, He has a unique experience of being the first, being involved with the first case diagnosed in Mississippi well over a year ago, almost a year and a half ago now. So he has a lot of experience both from a clinical side as well as from a research side that he can share um, to try to answer many questions and myths that are out there about COVID, uh, the vaccine and where we are moving forward. So really glad to have you here today and thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us.
1: It's my pleasure to be here. This is really cool what you're doing, Dr. Burgess.
0: Well, thank you. You know, I'm doing this out of necessity, right? I'm a sports medicine physician. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. You know, the last thing I really want to be talking about is COVID-19, especially when football season is a couple of weeks away. So, you know, last year I did two different uh, sessions about COVID and I thought I was done with it, as did many other Americans. We thought we were done with it. We went through throughout the summer. Um, people started to take their mask off, let your guard down, start to travel. And boom, here we are at the end of July, early August, school's about to start. And, you know, we are in a wave and we are in a surge like we have not seen before with this Delta variant. In life, we have to call timeout. Sometimes just like in sports, we have to call timeout. And that's literally what today's episode is about, uh, to try to educate people, to try to calm some fears that people have uh, that are real no matter why it, they have that fear, it's real to them. Uh, so we're going to try to try to combat that with facts, with education, with um, what's coming from the clinical research, what we're seeing locally, nationally, internationally, uh, to just try to help people make a, a sound decision uh, in this uh, fight with COVID-19. So first, give a, just give me an overview of You know, like I said, you were involved with the first diagnosis in Mississippi, as well as dealing with the clinical research. Um, So just tell me about that.
1: Yeah, uh, let me tell you um, a a little story that um, I'm a bit ashamed uh, to, to reveal. So when we were hearing about this, I guess, December about this new virus um, that they found in in China and uh, wasn't thinking too much about it. And then we got our first case in Washington state, January 14th or 12th, somewhere about that.
0: 2020.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2020. uh, Exactly. 2020. And so I still wasn't thinking too much about it. Like, oh, okay, it's probably not going to be much of a deal. And then I and two of my colleagues packed up and went to a national conference in San Diego, February, end of February, about February 28th. um, And along with a bunch of other academic doctors, it was the, um, Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, ACGME National Conference. So docs from all over the country, we descended on this huge conference in San Diego. And at that um, conference, there was a keynote from the infectious disease um, group from the University of Nebraska, which um, interestingly, apparently Nebraska has some incredible infectious disease program. And the people that came off that cruise ship um, and were infected, they were all lifted into um, Nebraska's infectious disease unit and so the guys from um, uh, from that unit were there to talk to us. And they're like, yeah, it's pretty contagious. Um, it's worrisome because um, many of the people that got it were completely asymptomatic. Um, and some of the people that wound up getting sick were you know, uh, severely ill. They're very worried that it has an airborne possibility, not just a respiratory droplet. And I remember leaving that conference and walking up on the boardwalk in San Diego um, up to my hotel, which was like a block away. I got on the phone to my brother who lives up in Portland. I'm like, Hey, this, this could be a real thing here. We may want to start thinking about it. I I went back home uh, to Mississippi and that next week diagnosed the very first case. And probably um, it was on my radar because, you know, I just went to this conference and, you know, we had a, we had a patient that had flu like symptoms and the flu was negative and had recently traveled. And, like, oh, this could be a thing. And the nuts and bolts on how to diagnose that were really kind of rudimentary now. I mean, we had to call up to the state health office, talk to Thomas Dobbs and Dr. Byers and said, OK, well, how do we uh, what swab do we use? Where do we send it? They had to walk us through all that contact, trace us, decide which one of us need to be quarantined, yada, yada. And it was incredible how hard that was to get done um, from that first case to the next maybe month or two just to get enough testing and then uh, wind up we needed mass when at first we were told we don't need mass and then going to try to find mass i mean it was just incredibly arduous at the beginning and here we are 16 17 months later and we've gone through many kind of roller coaster ups and downs With the most recent up being the mass vaccination of the population with a very effective and safe vaccine, 160 million Americans vaccinated. Our our rates started plummeting. And we, myself included, thought, okay, we're good to go. You know, we had a couple of soccer things in Atlanta and Nashville, and I treated those like, hey, I'm good to go. I can go to a restaurant for the first time. And my kids were vaccinated and we uh, let down our guard a little bit. And now in retrospect, and uh, that hindsight is always 2020, I realized how foolish that was because what was going on in in India was inevitably going to come here. So when you're dealing with a respiratory airborne illness, you can only have um, disparate rules for the area in which you're willing to lock down your borders. So, It makes no sense to have one set of rules for Jones County and then another set for Forest County and Lamar County, unless you're going to shut down your borders. So um, I should have, in retrospect, realized that what was going on in, in India was inevitably going to come here unless we're going to shut down our borders and so on and so forth. But we really didn't understand exactly how bad what was going on in India was. What this new strain, this delta strain, has revealed is it is much more infectious than the previous iterations, about twice as infectious as the alpha variant, which was the uh, UK variant, which was more infectious than the original one that I diagnosed way back in March of 2020. So what that translates into is on average, when you get this illness, you are going to give it to three to six other people. And that's much, much more infectious. It's on the order of measles in terms of infectivity, which means that we really have no mechanism of control without mass quarantine and mass masking. And the other pieces of information we've learned about this particular variant is it causes a more severe illness. And that's, of course, worrisome um, because our therapeutics, although they've evolved, they're not great just yet. We don't have a fantastic antiviral, although we're studying that now. Um, we have monoclonal antibodies that have been shown to be pretty good. We've discovered some benefit with some steroids and different ma- uh, methods of intubation. So we're better than we were, but it's worrisome that it's causing more severe disease. And then the, the most worrisome aspect um, is the potential for breakthrough infections for people that have already been vaccinated. So we know that that's occurring. Um, The good news is it's occurring at a really relatively small number. So whenever we give a number, bear in mind that this is retrospective. This is me looking backwards. This could all change going forwards. But as of today, we have about 160 million Americans vaccinated and we have about 153,000 known breakthrough infections that's a 0.0098% breakthrough rate. That's a really small number. That could change with the Delta. So this is retrospective. This is with uh, the, the previous strain. So it may be less, but it is really remarkably effective. And for the breakthroughs that we have, what we've learned from Providence Town, Massachusetts, and the super spreader event up there is that the people that were infected um, that were vaccinated had just as much virus in them as the people that were unvaccinated, which means that they're likely to spread it just as much as the people that get really sick, even though the people that are vaccinated are not going to get really sick.
0: Yeah, let's pause right there because I think that is a key that we learned within this last week is that vaccinated people that have breakthrough COVID can spread the virus to other people, especially those that are not vaccinated, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely correct. We've learned that, which is why the CDC now recommends everybody be masked regardless of your vaccination status. And, and and it just goes to show how, um, how changing our uh, fund of knowledge is in an emerging pandemic. What we thought a month ago seems primitive and how could we have been so stupid, let alone what we thought a year ago. So um, I know all of this makes people um, think of us as less trustworthy, but we need to be honest and say, we are learning as we go. So um, the question is, what is the safest thing for us to do with this unknown? And this unknown um, can evolve again a month from now, six months from now, we may find variations that break through all of the vaccinated people. And that is a big concern because there was a model put out by European researchers just this week that found that the worst possible scenario in regards to a situation where vaccines can be rendered ineffective is if you have a population that has a large vaccinated group of people and a large group of people that are unvaccinated because that allows the new variants to spread and then go and land on vaccinated people and figure out a way to get around their immune defenses. And that's precisely this, the milieu that we have here in the United States with a really pretty high vaccination rate um, in the 60 plus percentage, but a very large uh, population, 40% of Americans is over hundred million people that are unvaccinated, so it creates a toxic stew where the vaccines can even be um, uh, bypassed, which means what's a take home message? What's the best thing we can do? It gets back to masking. Um, it gets back to limiting unnecessary exposures and uh, doing that thing that we were so happy to get rid of just a few months ago We got to get back to it. That's really the the take-home message. And the second one is if we really want to be done with this, if we really as a country want to be done with this, the quicker we can all, every single one of us get vaccinated and then protect those that are not able to be vaccinated, meaning the 12 and under, until we come up with a vaccine for them, which will probably be this fall, um, the better off we'll be as a nation in a world.
0: So explain why variants exist.
1: Evolution, these uh, viruses, um, the coronavirus and the flu virus are RNA viruses. B- basically um, it's, it's a shell with a bit of DNA and their sole um, reason for being is to continue being and to continue to be able to reproduce and, um, and pass on their genetic material. So because these things have a short lifespan They don't live, you know, 70 years like humans. They live and die very quickly and replicate very quickly. They are able to evolve very quickly. Now, um, the reason we have a yearly flu vaccine is because the influenza virus uh, has a very short, rapid turnover. So it can evolve very, very quickly on the order of annually, which is why we have to have a new flu shot every single year. The coronaviruses don't evolve as quickly as the flu viruses, but they are pretty quick. And the more we have infections in the community, the more quickly they will evolve. If all of us, theoretically speaking, wore a mask continuously for the next three, four weeks, this thing would die out in America or wherever um, the mask uh, mandate would, would apply. And would not be able to further evolve unless I went to a country um, where it was exposed to humans that were unmasked so if if we can slow this thing down, either with uh, masking or massive vaccination, or and right now we have to do the combination of the two, it will cease its ability to um, evolve and bypass our immune defenses. And that's the whole way this thing came into existence, Um, whether it evolved naturally from bats or pangolins or um, was mutated purposely from a Chinese lab, it doesn't really matter. Um, It's here now in the world, and it will continue being here unless we cease its ability to evolve.
0: Yeah. So let's speak about the urgency of the moment that we're in. And, you know, one main thing that we were able to loosen guidelines because of hospital utilization, right? At the point where hospitals could function and deal with COVID-19, we were able to step back a little bit because there were less people in the community with infections. But over the last two to three weeks, especially in the state of Mississippi, we've seen pretty much hospitals go from being down to one and two COVID-19 patients to now having a negative surplus of ICU beds. Uh, Will you speak about that?
1: Yeah. So there are many reasons to try to curb this this, uh, disease, um, including trying to save the people that are most susceptible. And we've done a pretty good job of... um, protecting the elderly because they have a very high vaccination rate, 70, 80%, even here in Mississippi. Um, But the other thing is we need to have available resources for people when they get sick from things other than COVID. So even if it's not COVID, people are going to be in car accidents. People are going to blow out their ACLs. People are going to have heart attacks and strokes, and they're going to need critical medical care. If all of our critical care beds are taken up by people with COVID, we have less ability to treat heart attacks, pneumonias, and all, all the other things that require critical care. And that's what this is about in regards to decreasing the burden for um uh hospital u- utilization. It's so that we are available for all the other things. And all the other things include the things that um are going to be inevitable, regardless of whether COVID is here or not. Absolutely. Let's
0: Speak a little bit about testing, so you know we the delta variant is by far the most um, commonly diagnosed variant or variant of covid nineteen right now I want to say greater than eighty percent. How do we determine if it's the delta variant versus u k variant or other variants?
1: yeah, so um, the state Department of Health does surveillance on Um, certain swabs that are sent up to them. So they don't test every single one, but um, there's an agreement um, with medical entities, uh, usually bigger hospitals and uh, and clinics for certain tests to be sent up to the State Department of Health so that they can do genomic analysis and see what kind of variant there is, especially in cases of vaccine breakthrough. So originally every single vaccine breakthrough they wanted sent up and they're still doing that to see what kind of variant was was breaking through on these people that were vaccinated. So um, it, it's a, a surveillance system, which means you take a percentage of the population um, of those tests and send them up to the State Department of Health, and they use their fancy tools and do genetic analysis and say this is a B.1.6-whatever variant, and that's how we get that uh, information.
0: All right. And now there's been some questions about can these tests determine um, flu, regular flu versus COVID.
1: Yeah, so it's two different uh, tests, two different um, uh, mediums, and two different swabs. Probably um, somebody is out there developing a, a single swab that can test for both. There's probably some company that's developing that. Right now, we're doing two separate swabs.
0: Okay. And most of the All flu right.
1: analysis is done um in-house, so uh, there's hardly any um, medical need to send a flu swab up to the State Department of Health. Most medical entities have what's called the rapid flu uh, analyzer, and you take that swab from a patient's nose, you put it into some liquid, and you run it into a machine, and you get the answer right then and there in your medical office.
0: I had a question about, does the COVID swab contain a carcinogen, ethylene oxide,
1: you mean the the cotton ball swab? Yeah, sure, the cotton ball swab. You, you know, let's. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up this question. So, uh, one, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe, um, but. Uh, uh, as an occupational medicine doctor, which is uh, my second specialty, we deal with toxic exposure. And um, this specialty came about to try to help people with unique um, exposure, such as coal miners and people that work in nuclear power plants and um, people that work with um, silica and asbestos and try to mitigate their risk. One of the fundamental tenets of toxicology is dosage matters. So almost every substance, with some exception, um, like strychnine, arsenic, and some other things, have what's called a therapeutic dose. Um, it's it's um, on a graph, it would be called a J-curve, where a certain amount of the substance, whether it's cocaine, heroin, whatever it is, can have some therapeutic benefits. But if it's a toxic entity, it very quickly ascends up with increasing dose into causing toxicity. I don't know what these swabs are made of, um, but the amount of exposure you get for that one little second is unlikely to render the exposure significant to have a major carcinogenic outcome. Um, We have probably been slathering ourselves with products like sunscreen, lotions, shampoos, toothpaste, that have some semblance of something that um, at a high enough dose can be carcinogenic. The the real question is dose. And I would very much doubt that having a five second swab once in your life um, would render enough exposure to anything that could make you get a cancer. Uh, To put it in perspective, we know asbestosis or exposure to asbestos causes mesothelioma it's not a single exposure. I mean, you have to have a lot of exposure before your lungs get scarred enough to develop that unique type of cancer. And that's, I think, something for people to bear in mind because we can render ourselves scared of every last little thing if you um, don't realize this principle of toxicology, which Absolutely. is those matters. Yeah, so now let's kind of switch
0: over to the vaccine, and kind of do like a rapid q and A. I'm just gonna have about 10, 12 questions And I'll ask you, you can expand on them as much or as little as possible, All right? So number one, and these are kind of myths, some of them are questions. So vaccines are not FDA
1: approved, um, and they
0: come out too fast. Just kind of speak to that.
1: The emergency use authorization is actually a higher threshold for safety and efficacy than you would for traditional FDA approval. FDA approval requires a certain amount of time of follow-up in order to get EUA, you have to tell the FDA, this is so good based on our pre- preliminary data and the benefits are going to be so large that it's unethical to wait the traditional FDA approval timeline, which by the way is gonna be this summer. So the bar to get EUA is actually higher in regards to safety and efficacy than traditional FDA approval. You have to be super um, confident in the safety and the efficacy to get EUA. So paradoxically, you should have more um, confidence if something gets EUA than just regular old FDA approval. Now, the temporal um, uh, knowledge is not yet determined. Like long-term, we don't know what's going to be the long-term consequences of this 10 years from now. We just don't have that data. But we also don't know what the long-term consequences 10 years from now is going to be for COVID infection. And we already have ample data that about a third of the people that get COVID have symptoms six to nine months later. And who knows if they'll ever go away. So long haulers. Yes. So when you're making your risk assessment, you really have to understand you have only two options, not a third. Your two options are you get infected or you get vaccinated. There is no third option. There's nobody that's going to be unexposed to either antibodies from vaccine or antibodies from natural infection. So the the risk calculation that you have to make is which the vaccine or the infection is going to cause me more symptoms, short term and long term. And I think when you make that risk analysis, it is a slam dunk home run, which is why something would get EUA. EUA is a higher bar.
0: So let's speak about innate immunity, meaning immunity from infection versus immunity from the vaccine.
1: Quite simply, it's not as good. So based on real world and serologic, meaning looking at the level of antibodies in people that have had both, the antibody levels are lower for people that had natural infection than those that get the mRNA vaccines. For those that have natural infection and they get mRNA vaccines, they have the highest level of protection for future variants. So even if you've had the illness, it's in your benefit to go and get vaccinated because your antibody levels are going to be the highest of anybody.
0: And then timing-wise, after infection, what's the usual waiting time?
1: Well, usually um, when we first got these things approved, we were saying three months because we didn't want um, um, scarce vaccines to be Mm -hmm. taken up by people um, that probably had some natural immunity, but you could probably uh, shorten that up right now. But the official guidance was three months. Um, I would say if you're completely over your infection, you, would it harm you to get it two months? Probably not. But um, uh, three months is the official guideline.
0: But we do know or that we feel that innate immunity will last at least three months, right? Yes.
1: And that's why that three-month guideline was, was put out there. That's likely going to change. And you'll probably be able to get it. After you're asymptomatic, so mm-hmm. probably 14 to 16 to 18 days, would it harm you to get it any sooner? Probably not.
0: Gotcha. All right. So I'm young and healthy. I'll be fine. If I get COVID 19, why should I get the vaccine?
1: Because if you get COVID 19, you also have to choose three to six of your friends or family that you're also going to infect. So it's not your sole decision. If if this were an illness like cancer that wasn't communicable, you could say, okay, I want to smoke, I want to drink, I want to use drugs. Okay, all right, that's on you. But when you decide that you're young and healthy and you're going to ride out COVID, ask yourself who the three to six other people are you, uh, in your life that you're also willing to get infected.
0: Very good. Uh, so what about vaccine and infertility? Um, you know, some people say, okay, they say that this vaccine does not Um, cause infertility, but how do we know
1: that? Because there's no evidence that it does. And we've studied it on people that were um, pregnant and we didn't know it at the time of the trials. Lots of people that were trying to get pregnant and have gotten the vaccine. There's no evidence that there's an increase in infer- infertility whatsoever. This comes from um, one of the um, theories from the University of Facebook School of Medicine that has really had no um, uh, data or even um, uh a rigorous study to support it It, it's an observation based on biologic plausibility but is it's too complicated for me to get into uh, without some visual graphics but it has no data to support it and it is a a theoretic concern that has not been proven out in the real world
0: gotcha Uh, and what are some of the side effects both common and uh rare that you've seen from the vaccine or that the study has shown
1: well, common is you're going to have a sore arm. Um, you'll have maybe a swelling at the side of injection. Um, you may experience lymph node enlargement on the side of an injection. Uh, if you have not been uh, previously infected, the second dose will have more symptoms um, compared to the first. If you've previously been infected, the first dose will have more um, side effects compared to the second. Um, Some people get real honest-to-goodness fevers and chills. Um, Some people feel feverish without an actual fever. Some people get fatigue. Some people get overall um, body aches um, or what we call myalgias um, or joint aches, arthralgias. Um, Almost everyone that has uh, these symptoms has it for 24 to 48 hours, tops, tops. And, and then it goes away. Um, some rare, more rare complications include myocarditis, and um, that occurs in young male athletes at a, um, a higher level than we would have predicted based on uh, baseline thresholds. Um, but fortunately, that has been shown um, to be uniformly uh, mild and not requiring um, special interventions or um, even hospitalization for the most part. They get better on their own. Um, Very rarely people can have um, an induction of autoimmune disease. So especially if you have your own autoimmune underlying disease, it can trigger a rheumatoid flare or a uh, lupus flare. Um, And that's basically about it. Um,
0: What about blood clots? No, there was some blood clots. That was with J&J, right?
1: That was with the AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca, Um, and the AstraZeneca is um, conjectured to also uh, be similar to um, J&J in that regard because they're built on the same uh, platform. It's a DNA vaccine with a viral carrier. And that was shown to be um, certainly higher than baseline in a small subset of reproductive age females. And yes, that was a a concern in in that group because it was um, much higher than we would expect in the natural population. So likely induced by that vaccine in that cohort. So we need to make additional risk calculations for them. And that is a possibility with that type of vaccine, with that particular subset.
0: Right. So that's why we advise people in general to speak with your provider, speak with your primary care physician who knows your medical history, who knows whatever specific you might have a risk for blood clots. So you might want to have take one of the vaccines that do not cause blood clots as much. So definitely speak to your primary care physician to get personalized information and feedback. All right. So One main thing is, you know, I don't trust the government to tell the truth about where COVID originated from. Why should I trust them with the vaccine?
1: Well, uh, because we have to have trust in order to live in a society. So at some point we have to decide for ourselves what entities are worthy of our trust, unless we're all going to live off the grid in our own little, Domiciles and try to go back to pre civilization wilderness type living. I have to trust that the engineers that make our bridges and our highways know what they're doing. I cannot be explained to how that's done. I just don't have the knowledge for it or really the aptitude. Um, Even if somebody were trying to explain it, it probably would escape my mind. We as a society have to decide who is worthy of our trust. And there's a difference between being misleading and being wrong. We can be wrong because we are guessing based on an um, incomplete set of knowledge. It's a whole nother thing to say you have a deleterious or ulterior motive and try to willfully deceive. In regards to where this came from and who, what government is telling you what, we have to go off the evidence that is available to us. And to be perfectly honest, if it was derived from a lab, it really makes no difference in regards to what we now have to do. Now it's out in the world and we have to figure out how to keep people from dying and infecting people with this. Then we can get to, well, hey, if this did come from the lab, we got to cut out what's going on in these labs that could potentially do this and relegate and um, regulate, I should say, that research more um, effectively and treat it more like nuclear um, reactors and really just have higher levels of security and decide what should be studied and what shouldn't. That's a post-mortem analysis. That's after we get over this pandemic. In the meantime, it's out there. So you gotta ask yourself, who do you believe when they say, get the vaccine and take a mask? And what do we have to gain from lying from that? You know, if, If you look at the statistics and you wanna know who your bedfellows are, like 90 some odd percent of the physicians in the United States of America have been vaccinated. I mean, uh,
0: 96 percent in the state of Mississippi.
1: Yeah. So if you if you want to decide who you want to ride with in regards to knowledge, you know, you, you have to decide at some point who you're going to trust. Are you going to trust teachers? Are you going to trust physicians? Are you going to trust uh, electrical engineers? Are you going to trust the person that installed your Wi-Fi is going to do? I have no idea how they do that thing. and Maybe they're not doing it as well, but I have to put my trust in it because when we have a fully functioning society, especially a society built on capitalism, which is the exchange of services and goods, we have to have a modicum of trust. And If you want to learn all there is to know about this, I hate to tell you, but you can't get it from the University of Facebook School of Medicine. There is another way of going about it, but it requires you to get a baseline level of education in epidemiology, in biostatistics, in immunology, or you can just take the word of Dr. Burgess, who's done that already for you.
0: Yeah, thank you for that explanation. what is the length of vaccine immunity um, and how does that vary from innate immunity? I know, I know we already talked about it, but what's the length of vaccine immunity that we've seen so far?
1: We're figuring that out right now. So yeah. a group of people got this vaccine in the trial starting in August. We're still analyzing their blood. We'll see. So far, so good. Um, there'll come a time where we'll say, OK, it looks like there's no more antibodies in these guys' blood. And this is when we should give the booster. So we're, this is an ongoing area of research. So let's talk
0: about boosters. So I know right now some people are getting booster injections or booster vaccinations. And right now it seems to be based off more of your comorbidities or those that are high risk or most vulnerable to COVID-19.
1: This is, again, another area that hasn't been well studied. Pfizer is now starting to put out some data in that regard. Um, But it's mainly um, based on observational data, meaning the highest number of our breakthroughs have come in this susceptible population, which is the older folks and the people with what we call immunocompromising conditions, meaning people that have conditions that make their immune system less robust. And... It is not surprising that this group of people are not mounting as robust of an immune response to the vaccine as others. We have seen this in other illnesses. So we give people above the age of 65 a flu shot that is four times more potent than the flu shot we give to people under the age of 65 because their immune systems require that higher potency to mount a significant response. So based on that previous knowledge about immune response with the flu vaccine and what we're now observing as time has gone on with the vaccinated population and the breakthroughs, we are conjecturing now, not based on solid um, randomized controlled trial data, but observational data, that we should probably give the older cohort and that cohort with immunocompromising states a booster. That's not official um, in regards to um, uh, well-designed studies to tell us that, but we think it's likely um, the wise thing to do. Certainly won't cause any harm, and we know that because um, there's a a large group of people that have had the uh, illness and have gotten vaccine, so essentially they've gotten a third shot, um, one from natural infection and two from vaccine, and they've done just well. So we think it's uh, better safe than sorry. Go ahead and get it.
0: Uh, What other immunity boosting alternatives are there to vaccines? I know early on there was some talk about different vitamin uh, combinations.
1: Yeah. So, um, those are based on biologic plausibility. We don't really have good data for it. Like, um, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, uh, melatonin. Um, I think I may be uh, forgetting one, um, natokinase. Um, so zinc, uh, one of them. Yeah. Zinc, zinc was another one. So, um, we, we still don't have um, really excellent data that those have any efficacy with the exception of zinc at the first sign of illness may decrease your symptoms. But you need to be careful with zinc dosage because that J curve, um, there is a threshold at which it ceases to be therapeutic and becomes toxic um, pretty quickly. Um, so I would do that only in combination with um, medical advice from your physician. But um, what we do know is helpful for immune boosting is having a healthy uh, lifestyle. We know that managing your stress, getting regular exercise, spending time in the natural outdoors are immune boosting, um, well um, uh, studied uh, immune bo- boosting things. So what I would um, advise people to do, uh, the safest, least costly, least likely to cause uh, side effects is go outside for 20 to 30 minutes and walk outside in the most natural setting you can every single day. That'll give you some vitamin D, that'll give you the boost of exercise, that'll give you the boost of what the Japanese call forest bathing, which has been shown to increase your immune response. If you Spend about five to ten minutes in nature, um, whether it's breathing in the stuff that's in the forest or um, the the calm that's provided by seeing nature. We don't quite know, but that is uh, proven to be beneficial. I would advise that for everybody. I'm um, less. Um, confident in advising the vitamin cocktail, although it's unlikely to cause harm. With the exception of zinc, you gotta be careful with the dosage and you gotta be careful with vitamin D dosages um, because some people are very susceptible to having their calcium levels become elevated with vitamin D. And I would do that only in conjunction with medical advice and monitoring.
0: Now, one thing is also when you develop symptoms, do not sit at home and wait a week before you go to see a physician because some of the antibodies Um, that we can give to treat early COVID, there is a time limit on that, correct?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. So I would recommend anybody that's symptomatic go and get tested and Based on your baseline risk level, your physician may say you are a good candidate for the monoclonal antibody infusions. And we have a time window in which we can do that. And um, only certain people benefit from that. So I think it would be wise. So, our original COVID clinic, uh, uh, what we call the Coffin Fever Clinic down here, that we developed to see, diagnose, and treat all of our COVID patients has been transformed now to just a COVID treatment center. So now that we have enough tests for everybody to do the testing, you can go to your doctor and get tested. Um, If you're diagnosed, you can go to a facility like that and get monoclonal antibodies if you qualify.
0: But with COVID deaths in kids, have we seen any association with underlying medical conditions? Who will be most at risk
1: yeah, absolutely. Um like all of these the people with more underlying medical conditions are are at higher risk, the people with uh, diminished immune systems, um the people that are already battling other things that are using their body's reserves. Um and also um it should be noted that the largest group of infections is incurring in the young people right now. And it's the people that are essentially unvaccinated. So the under 20 age group is making up the bulk of the infections and the over 60 age group has minuscule amount of infection. So yes, if, uh, if your child is, um, uh, battling, um, any sort of chronic illness, they're more at risk, and all the more reason for that person that you brought up in the original anecdote say, "I'm young and healthy. Why should I bother?" Well, you could give it to your six-year-old niece who may not be able to battle it as well, or your grandmother who was um, already vaccinated but may be one of those with a compromised immune system is going to get the second infection from you. So um, it goes back to that same principle of benevolence. If we're going to live in a society together, everybody wants to be free and hug and high five. Well, that right comes with the responsibility of also doing the right thing. You can't say, I want to go out to the bars and I want to go out to the restaurant, hang with my friends, but I also want to ride this out and get my own illness and not care if I infect three to six of them who are going to infect three to six others who are going to infect three to six. It's just, you can't have that cognitive dissonance of being uber selfish like that at the same time wanting to interact with the other people.
0: That's excellent. My
1: last question I have for you,
0: Uh, how many deaths have been caused by uh, the vaccine that we're aware of?
1: Oh, my gosh, Um, that is a a minuscule number, if, if any at all, because we have a temporal association with deaths that occur, right? You get vaccinated and you die of a heart attack, you die of a car accident. But in regards to deaths directly attributed to the vaccine, zero. Like a vaccine caused you to die. We have no known immediate impact of the vaccine causing a known death. People have died post-vaccination. They've died of cancer. They've died of many other things. Um, But the vaccine causing death, none that I'm aware of. Thank you. How many people do we have that COVID has killed?
0: Yeah. Right. Almost. uh, We're approaching, what, 7,600 in the state of Mississippi. And that's an old number. (laughs) That's a safe number to say for sure.
1: That's Mississippi.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rubash, I'm glad that you were in your home, Jim, because I just gave you a workout and this was completely unscripted. He had absolutely no idea these questions that I have on this page over here. And I've been throwing darts at him for now the last 30 minutes. So I really appreciate you.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure. This is cool. I'm really um, impressed with what you're doing here. A busy father and a busy surgeon. This is a really cool thing that you're doing. Um, um, I'm in awe. I
0: appreciate it, man. I'm just trying to help as many people as I can. Well, anything else that you
1: want to add? So I think um, uh, the take home message um, that I want to leave people with is two options. You only have two. You're either going to get this illness or you're going to get vaccinated. And then if you choose the path of illness, go ahead and write down to three to six people you're also willing to get infected and then make your decisions.
0: Absolutely. We all have to choose, right? We gotta choose. choose. This is what this vaccine is about. You know, There are people that are paralyzed from the fear of a vaccine. There are fe- people that are paralyzed from the fear of dying from COVID-19, but we have to make decisions. And the best way to make a decision is by informing yourself because that's what informed consent is about. You have to first understand what you're doing, what you're taking, and then make a decision. So hopefully this helps. And Dr. Rubash, again, thank you for your time. And next time, I promise you, we'll talk about something more exciting than COVID-19.
1: Come on down, let's go kick the ball around.
0: Absolutely, yeah, hey, I got about one year of coaching experience, so if you're looking for anyone to add to your uh, soccer academy, I'm your man. I love it. All right, have a good one, man.
1: See Welcome to the
0: podcast. Let's go.